0: Crosspoint Church's Weekly Sermon Audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter one, verse 18 is where we left off and where we are this morning. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the in the rack in the chair in front of you. And Uh, as our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it as our gift to you. If you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Romans 1 on either page 736 or 939, just depending on both of those Bibles in front of you would be the same version, just different copies. So that's why there's different page numbers. As you're finding that, imagine with me going to a doctor for a checkup. This is near and dear to me because I'm of, I'm of the age now where um, you need yearly checkups. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. But this past week, I had a yearly checkup with my doctor. Imagine going to that doctor and imagine that your heart was about to give out. Maybe you had some heart disease and maybe your whole vascular system was completely clogged up, and imagine that as part of that physical, the doctor took an x-ray or an MRI or whatever, I don't even know the medical terms, but imagine he did a full diagnosis of your condition, imagine that he could do that, and he discovered that your heart was about to stop, and oh, by the way, you also had a runny nose. (laughs) and then he comes into the room as you're there anxiously waiting for the diagnosis, and he says, yeah, you know, I see some things here. They might be of concern. Doesn't really tell you what's going on with your heart, even though at any moment you could drop dead of a heart attack. He says, but you know, I know those sniffles have been really giving you a problem, so let me give you a, a good decongestant. I'll write this prescription or whatever. Maybe that's over the counter. Copay at the front desk, and you're on your way. You, well, not you, because then you'd drop dead sometime that week. But if your family knew that, they would charge that doctor with medical malpractice, wouldn't they? Well, likewise... If we don't read Romans 1, 18 through 32, we're just going to handle through verse 25 today. If we don't stare at the truth of what we're going to look at today, even though it is difficult, it would be spiritual malpractice. This is why, this text is one of the reasons why we just work through books of the Bible, because we cannot skip passages like this. They're hard, but they're good. It's like eating broccoli. It's good for our soul, spiritually. <laughs> well, let's, let's read the text and pray. Paul starts in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, and let's read ourselves into that they, what Paul is talking about here is all of humanity. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, these words are weighty and important and hard, but they are good for us. The scriptures say that your word is breathed out by you, and that it is all profitable for us. So Father, I pray this morning as we work through this text, and next week as we work through the remainder of this chapter, and then into chapter 2, which is more indictment of humanity, may you give us endurance, and may you give us ears to hear, and hearts to embrace the good truth of your word, that it might come and conform us more into the image of Christ. And for my friends that are here this morning who are not yet trusting in Jesus, would you, Lord, by your grace, give them the very thing that you require of them, which is a a new heart so that they can believe. Lord, do all these things. I pray for your glory. I pray that you do these things in in the children's rooms this morning. Lord, I pray for our youth away in West Virginia, that it would be a great time of spiritual renewal for them. And On this President's Day weekend, we pray for our president and our Congress and Senate and our politicians and our leaders. We give you thanks for them. Even when we may disagree with them, we know that you have appointed them to their positions and that the king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord, Proverbs says, you direct it wherever you will. So we pray for grace and wisdom for our leaders, for our president. We pray in particular for our military who, some from even this church, are deployed in harm's way. We pray for grace to them. Lord, help us now to understand this text and form Christ in us as a result of our time working through this, I pray. In in Jesus' name, amen here's what's interesting about the second half of Romans 1. <clears throat> by the way, we're about to get on a train for the next couple chapters that it, it's, it's, it's just going to be, we're just going to have to buckle up and take it. Because starting in verse 18, all the way through the middle of chapter 3, so basically for the next two chapters, Paul is going to unleash an assault on human self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And that may come as a bit of a jolt to us because we just ended last week on Paul really giving us the point of his letter. He says that, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And it would make sense to us to after this incredible basically thesis statement Midway through chapter 1 about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And remember what that righteousness of God is. Luther saw it wrongly. He thought for years that it was God's judgment on him. But he realized the truth of the gospel. That it was actually how God makes sinners righteous through the work of his son. So right off the bat, Paul states this great truth of the gospel. And we might expect him in verse 18 to now unpack how... God saves us through the work of His Son. And He does that, but He doesn't get there until midway through chapter 3. At verse 18, He takes a hard left turn, and He goes from how the righteousness of God has been revealed to now how the wrath of God has been revealed. So in other words, before Paul gets into the solution of the gospel, he now takes two chapters to tell us about the problem that the gospel solves. we got a lot of army guys in here. I know this is a four-day weekend, so some of you are away, but um, you know this. You know that in every, milita- in every army, I don't know about the Navy, I don't know what they do, but you know in every army, <laughs> that's for you, Matt, uh, Navy pilot right there, for every army operation there's this thing called an oport, an operations order and it has five paragraphs and basically everything that that unit is going to do is in these five paragraphs and paragraph number one is say it with me situation right paul is telling us what the situation is for all humanity and it is good for us to hear these words so let me give you what I think is the main point of the second half of Romans 1, and then we're going to just work through it. I think the main point is verse 18. Let me read verse 18 again. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we might, we might summarize the point that Paul is going to make here for the rest of this chapter with this sentence here. Let me just put it this way, and I'll put it up on the screen. The main point, I think, of the rest of this chapter is is that God's wrath, His judgment of sin is justly revealed against all humanity because it has suppressed the truth. Happy Sunday to you folks, that's the point of the passage Well, let's unpack it. Now, I think that's the main point. God's wrath is justly revealed against all humanity because it has suppressed the truth. But as we unpack this, I think it'll help us see the glory of the gospel better. Okay, truth number one, I think we see that unpacks verse 18 there, which I think is the point of this passage. We see in verses 19 and 20. Let me give you the point that I think Paul is making here in 19 and 20. He's saying that God has revealed his glory to all of humanity. God has shown himself. He's displayed, he's revealed himself in his glory to all of humanity. Let's read verses 19 and 20 again. Paul says, "For what can be known, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, meaning all mankind, are without excuse. Now what Paul, Paul in particular in the second half of Romans 1, has in mind the Gentiles. And so let's remember just to kind of define terms here. Gentiles is a biblical word that describes basically anybody that is not ethnically Jew. So remember in the Old Testament, God has created the world, and he's created a great multitude of people. He created everybody that has ever lived. And early on in Genesis, God chooses a man named Abraham. And he takes that man and he says, I'm going to make a nation through you. I'm going to make a family through you. And through this family, I am going to create a nation Not because I am more, I love this nation more than anybody else, but because through this nation, I am going to bless all of the world. In fact, that's the promise of God to Abraham about his descendants who become the nation of Israel. He says that through you, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. And ultimately, we know how God does that because we read in the New Testament that through Abraham, through his offspring, through his seed, which is Israel, which ultimately becomes Christ, will be the Messiah that blesses not just the Jew, but the Gentile. And so really humanity is divided early on in the Bible into basically two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews are the people of God that exist to be a blessing to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles will see the glory of God in the way they live their lives. And God intends to bless all people through the seed that would come through the Jews. Well, in the New Testament, We still have this division of Jews and Gentiles. And in this Roman church, remember what we talked about the first couple of weeks, that Paul is interested in bringing unity between these Jews and Gentiles who have both converted to Christ here in this first century in the church in Rome. And there's division amongst them. And Paul now is in this particular portion of the chapter wanting to give the Gentiles no wiggle room. Because he is anticipating the objection of maybe some Gentiles who are saying, you know what, we weren't part of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and so we didn't receive the benefits, the blessing, the law, we didn't have Moses, we didn't have the prophets, we're just kind of out here trying to do our own thing, so how can God hold us accountable? And Paul, in Romans 1, is taking aim at that mindset of the Gentiles who are saying, hey, we are excused. We have a a reason for not following God because we didn't have the revelation of God. And Paul is saying to them here that no, God has in a sense revealed himself to all of humanity. Now in chapter 2, he's going to take aim at the Jews, who he says, not only do you have the general revelation of creation, but you have the specific revelation of God's word, and you've even failed in that. But at this point, he's speaking to the Gentiles, and he's saying that you are without excuse because you have this world, you have this incredible creation, and it should be enough to cause you to look up from yourself and point you to the fact that there is a God. Just past couple weeks, we've had a lot of babies born in the church, and um, I was visiting with a family that just had a baby, and we were just remarking about how glorious birth is and how just a baby being created in the womb is just a—it's a, a, an echo of the image of God. It's just, it's just clearly a miracle that God would cause... You know what i'm talking about and then all of a sudden (laughs) i was getting down a road there that i didn't know quite and that then a baby would be formed and then i was talking to this family about just the glory of a human eye now i'm i'm not a medical person you know that that's been well documented in fact speaking of babies My wife was on, um, just our daughter celebrated her 12th birthday on Valentine's Day, and it made me remember as I was talking to this family about how before Jennifer gave birth to our daughter, she was on bed rest for like three or four months or so because her, her cervix was thin. And I thought that the word cervix was referring to like your pelvis bone. And so they were saying that her cervix was thin, and I was thinking, gosh, like her bones must be brittle or whatever, and... And um, so, I mean, I, did, I didn't even know that I didn't have a cervix. I thought it was just, <laughs> so that's the type of guy, that's the guy you're listening to right now, right? <laughs> I don't know anything. My first date with Jennifer, she was in medical school and she, I asked her what type of doctor she wanted to be and she said, I want to be a pediatrician. And my first thought was she wants to be a foot doctor? Why would, you? anyway. <laughs> So I'll leave this more medical discussion to the eye doctors among us. I think there's a couple of them. But just know that the complexity of whatever's going on in the back of the eye, the nerves that have to meet with whatever's in the back of your head or whatever. (laughs) Friends, it is unbelievable. And if we could... Here behind the curtain of all of the cells, we would be tempted, as C.S. Lewis says, about just observing other human beings. If we could see the glory, even in its marred, fallen sense, it is other human beings, we would be tempted to fall down and worship one another. That's the glory. Paul says that creation, planet Earth 2, you know that BBC specials came on? Debuted last night, and I'm just looking at these little this three-toed sloth on some remote island in the Pacific, and I'm just mesmerized. That God would create a world so incredibly beautiful, and Paul is saying that humanity has this revelation of God, but we have all, all of us, have spurned it and rejected it. We are like a child holding an overinflated beach ball underneath the water saying to somebody, there's no beach ball here. Like we're just struggling to keep it under the water. We are suppressing the truth. And what does Paul say? He says that as a result of this, man is without excuse. That's the result of verses 19 and 20. God has revealed his glory to all mankind, to all humanity, and the result is is that man is without excuse because we've suppressed the truth. We're without excuse. Now here's here's the objection that we have at this point. And I think it's an honest objection, and I think we need to think about it. Some of us may say, well, how could people be without excuse? How could people rightly be under the wrath of God? How could God judge somebody who has never heard of Christ, maybe in some remote island in Vanuatu where the Derringers are preparing to go, how can God judge somebody who lives and dies? How can they rightly be without excuse? They've never heard of Christ. Well, notice here that God is not judging them for never hearing of Christ. He's judging them for rejecting Him. Him. They're being judged because they're rejecting God, the Father, in the glory of creation. Christ, which we'll get to later, is the answer to the problem of the rejection of God by all humanity. Which then, and this is, friends, let's just, let's just admit that this is one of the most difficult passages for us to swallow. Paul says that all humanity is without excuse. That means that there are by nature no innocent people. The objection that we have is, well, what about the innocent guy? Because embedded in that objection of, well, what about that person who's never heard? And the, Im, the embedded in that objection is, is that that person somehow is by nature morally neutral or innocent. And Paul is pushing against that. He's saying that all of humanity is without excuse. Friends, this text is like a great leveler, it levels the playing field for all of humanity. It puts us all in one category, whether we're a good church kid that grows up in the south, or whether we are somebody that has grown up in some remote island, or in some false god-worshipping culture, all of humanity by nature is without excuse. Friends, that's how we were born, all of us. By nature, we're not born basically good. Next week, we're going to do a child dedication where we're going to pray for a bunch of children in this church. And by the way, we did that when we're going to work through the second half of this chapter, which talks about sexual sin and homosexuality and all sorts of stuff, which we're going to handle. Which I thought about, oh, okay, all the grandmas that are going to be here seeing their baby dedicated, and that's the text. But anyway, God has his purposes, right? <laughs> so, just a little warning to grandma that's what we're handling next week. But the point is, is that all of us, we don't by nature think of ourselves that way. But that's the way the Bible thinks of us. It's what the Bible says about us. This then leads us to what man has done, our second truth. Look at verse 21. Paul says that, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that, I think that leads us to this second truth that we see here is that humanity has suppressed the truth of God. All of humanity. We knew God, but we did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. And what has this resulted in? It has resulted in the reasoning. Our reasoning is polluted. We are now warped in our ability to know God. In fact, later on in Romans chapter 8, that again we'll get to sometime in the future, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the human heart in its natural state, cannot obey God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel cannot be discerned, cannot be understood by the natural mind. We are warped. Even though mankind in his fallen nature still bears, in even in a marred state, the image of God is warped. It's like the connection has been cut off. And even though we are incredibly, incredibly, uh, unbelievably blessed creatures as we still bear the image of God, we have been polluted and cut off from the source of life. That's why there can be brilliant people who can do brilliant things, but also make an absolute mess of their lives and reject God. Because the human mind, as a result of suppressing the truth has been polluted friends this explains so much about the world this explains why there can be such goodness and greatness in the world through even unbelievers but why the world is so broken it explains so much about even my own heart that even though i know that i've been regenerated and renewed i'm still dealing with the vestiges of this pollution in my own soul so Reynold read for us from Colossians chapter one at the beginning, he says it says, Paul says that what's true about the Christian is he's been transferred, he's been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we were trapped in a cell of our own suppression of God's truth, and we lived in that muck and that mire, and salvation is this glorious truth that God has transferred us into the domain of His Son, the Kingdom of His Son, but then the rest of that citizenship in that new domain is washing off the residue of the pollution that existed on us when we were trapped in in the domain of darkness. Friends, this explains so much about the inner workings of my heart and your heart, even if we know Christ, doesn't it? This is what the Christian life is. is It's it's unpolluting the mind. That's called sanctification. Well, let's keep going, which leads us to the third and, and final truth here that we see. And it is that humanity has exchanged the Creator For the creature. Humanity has exchanged the creator for the creature. Let's look at verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And again, let's read ourselves into that they. That we all by nature are inheritors of this foolishness. And you may think, well, wait a minute, I've never really been a fool, I I basically have been a pretty decent person. But again, the Bible doesn't judge our righteousness or our goodness in a horizontal way. It doesn't say, you know, you've, you're basically better than all of these other people out there. And so God's going to kind of accept you because you, you're not a total, complete idiot. But you've got some things wrong. But, you, you know, you're not a fool. But that's kind of how we tend to think of ourselves. But the dread of that system is, when does... When does our righteousness, even in its tainted sense, if it were based on sort of our relatively decent understanding of what it means to be a human and honor God, when does that, when is that good enough? Do you see the dread of that system? Do you see the dread of, of basing our right standing with God on our relative horizontal earthly morality? Because when is good, good enough? And don't we conveniently always draw the line like right after us? You know, it's like... You know, I'm not the greatest guy, but I mean, and the cutoff line always seems to be uh, right, right after we've passed over it. But w- what about the guy who's just, just like right on the other side? And so it's hard for us to think this way because we're not programmed this way. And even this programming is part of the pollution. We tend to think of ourselves as relatively decent people, but the Bible doesn't put us in that category. It says that, We claim to be wise. We claim to think that we know enough of God to be able to honor him. But we are fools. And verse 23 says, And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, when we think of this, we tend to think of primitive cultures and people that would, you know, worship some idol or even some animal. In fact, I I got a front row seat of that this of, of that this past couple of weeks when I was in India. You know, you'll be driving through some busy street in Nasik, India, a city of like a million and a half people. Kalapur, India, a city of a million people. And um, we'll be zipping around. Uh, la- last year, in fact, I, 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 I preached on like the uh, Indian version of like TBN, um, like a TV station, the pastor that's going to be here in March, that's going to preach for us. He bought like a 30-minute segment to, like, try and get the gospel out in this really bad teaching. And, and we were riding, I was riding on his, the back of his moped, um, zipping in and out through traffic in Kalapur, India, the city of a million people. And every now and again, we'd have to slam on the brakes because there would be, like, a cow walking through the street. And these, these cattle are sacred, are sacred animals in Hinduism and so you know everything just sort of stops for this cow crossing the street and it's easy to sort of look at that and say oh well that is so primitive and ridiculous but friends we stop and reorder our lives for our idols too don't we I mean come on we we reorder everything in our world to have our children be awesome and for us to be fit and whatever you see the human heart is inclined to take created things and to replace the creator with the created thing. Friends, that's called idolatry. We all have our idols. Some cultures have little golden statues or maybe a cow wandering in the streets and some cultures like ours have intangible things that we lust after that we try and find our satisfaction in. And all of that is a result of God's judgment on us as a people. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they, there's that word again, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what we see here is Paul is telling us the story of humanity is that man trades in God alone can satisfy for things, for created things, that will never satisfy. And we have all, to some degree, done this. I can remember when I um, became aware of one of my idols. I was watching, I was in my early 30s, and I was watching a USC the real USC, the University of Southern California football game on TV. And I think for the first time, it dawned on me that I was nowhere near being a great athlete. (laughs) I was in my mid-30s, father of four at this point, pastor of a church. It was a slow realization. I had this angst, you know, that... Man, if I'd have been bigger, man, I, you know, the coach would have noticed me. I was like Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> if he'd have put me in, we could have won state. <laughs> I just had this, like, angst where I just couldn't enjoy watching great athletes because I was like, ah, I, I, man, i thought. have... That'd have been bigger, faster. Yeah, exactly. If you'd have been bigger, faster, stronger, maybe you'd have been a good athlete. Because I was putting this, I was putting this hope of my self-esteem in some achievement. And don't we do that? Don't we press our kids into like anxiety? Don't we drive ourselves? Don't we grind ourselves? into the ground, trying to keep up with people. Don't we? I mean, we we don't have golden statues or cows walking through the streets, but friends, make no mistake, we too all have our idols, don't we? And we are so prone to trade in the God who alone can satisfy with this creature who will never satisfy. And what's, here's the dreadful thing. Here's, Here's, as I read this text, here's the, here's the really humbling thing. Is that what's the result? What's the result of this? That humanity has exchanged the creator for the creature? The result is that God gives humanity over to itself. Look at verse 24 again. It says, okay, claiming to be wise, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for all these creatures. Therefore, verse 24... God gave them up. So we tend to think of the wrath of God as something in the future. And that's, that's certainly true biblically, that the wrath of God is being stored up for that day when God will pour out the wrath of God on all of those who have not trusted in his son. Friends, I know this is a difficult truth, but it's true, it's biblical, you need to hear it. If I didn't tell you these things, I would be like a physician that knew that you had clogged arteries, and I just gave you a decongestant friends the, the, the truth of the scripture is is that we that God is not only storing up wrath for that day but also that God is giving us his wrath right now. in fact, our sin God giving us over to our sin is in fact part of god 's wrath, so we tend to think of like social ills in the United States, like abortion. And we say God will will judge us for that. And certainly that will be the case someday. But in a sense, that is God's judgment. He's giving us over to ourselves. Do you see that? That's where all humanity is. God's wrath is not something entirely in the future. It is the present reality of mankind. God is giving them over think of it this way. God's mercy mercy says, my will be done. God's wrath and judgment says, your will be done. What a dreadful thing. What a dreadful thing. But there's hope. See, there's just a glimmer of hope here. And here's the good news. The Bible does not end on verse 25. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Right? Right? praise God, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Last part of verse 25, who is blessed forever. Amen. It's as if Paul, he can't, he can't go with so much bad news without just bringing in the glory of God midway through this indictment of humanity, right? And so the good news, friends, although I realize maybe this hasn't been the most cheerful half hour of your life. The good news of this, friends, is that the Bible does not stop here. Praise God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive through Christ Jesus. But here's the point that we cannot miss, that we cannot skip. We've got to understand the depth of the problem before we can revel in the glory of the solution. So three reflections, and I end with this. They're not on the screen. Let me just give them to you. One, as we consider Romans 1, 18 through 25, and we're going to do more next week, and then we're going to do more in chapter 2, so buckle up. Don't think, I mean, come up for air, but we're going back down under next week, all right? Three reflections as we consider the judgment of God, the wrath of God, one, this should make the Christian understand the world better. Um, By that, I mean that we should not be shocked that a polluted world acts polluted. We shouldn't be shocked when an idolatrous world is caught up in idolatry. You see, this reorients our biblical categories to all the world. Remember, there's not like bad people and then good people and then everybody that's kind of in this middle ground. No, we are all by nature. We are all by nature, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. This should make us understand the world better. We should view humanity through the lens of Romans 1. And then that leads us to the the second Thing, that it should make us understand ourselves better. We should we should understand ourselves better, realizing that this is what we came out of, which should make us more humble. Like there should, like it should be an oxymoron. A pr- the the phrase "proud Christian" should be it shouldn't even exist. Arrogant, moralistic, self righteous Christian. It shouldn't even exist. In fact, if we skip too quickly to the gospel before we look at Romans 1, 2, and 3, it will produce in us possibly a self-righteousness which Romans 1, 2, and 3 is meant to dismantle and destroy. We can't fast forward to the gospel until we understand the depths of what the gospel has brought us out of. And that's, friends, frankly, that's the problem with much of Bible Belt Christianity, it assumes a basic neutrality and goodness of humanity and it teaches the gospel as some sort of add-on. It's life 2.0. You're a good little boy, Johnny and Susie. Now if you will just you know, follow the teachings of Jesus, life will go better for you. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that the wrath of God is being poured out on all of us and God in his kindness rescues us. Which then leads me to reflection number three, which I just kind of said, but I'll say it again. Is that this should make the Christian more grateful. One of the things that humanity is indicted for in verse 21 is they did not honor God and they didn't give thanks to him. This should make us more thankful. This should deepen our worship when we stare in the wonder of creation. Like last week, I was quite frankly, I was a little embarrassed after this service. And I know you bunch of you are going to email me. No, don't be. I was. I just started like laughing and crying in the middle of the sermon as we just considered the glory of God and salvation. But think about, think about, think about like a a movie scene where two people are enduring some incredible trial. They're they're about to be killed or maybe they're in some war or some great tragedy and they barely escape death at the end and they're like laying on you know the ground after the explosion happens you know in the back and it's just them laying there and they're looking at each other and this is the final seconds of the movie and they realize that they have been rescued. What do those characters often do? Sometimes they look at each other and they just start they just they just start laughing like <laughs> wow. And when we stare at Romans 1 and Romans 2, it should produce in us this wonder, the wonder that God would do this, the wonder that God would save a wretch like me. And when Christians realize that, what it produces them is this humility and this aroma that then God uses to make attractive to an onlooking world. See, that's the glory of the Christian life being on mission. It's it's not a grumpy righteousness that looks down the end of its nose at a world that they see, that's Romans 1. They say, no, this is Romans 1. And God has rescued me from it. And now that tints, it taints, it colors the way I look at everything with humility and joy. Because what God did for me, a wretched Romans 1 sinner, he can do for anybody. May God stamp that on our hearts for our good and our joy and our fruitfulness. In this Romans 1 world. We'll buckle up three or four more weeks of this (laughs) and then we'll get to Romans 3. (laughs) Friends maybe you came here this morning and you finally accepted an invitation to church and um, what's kept you from church for a long time is maybe you grew up in a cranky angry church where the preacher talked about the wrath of God. (laughs) And the one time you accept the invitation from your friend to come, as God would have it, (laughs) we talked about the wrath of God. (laughs) Now, friends, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's God's kindness to you. Because your heart is clogged. And every part of your spiritual vascular system is blocked. And you need open-heart surgery. You don't need cold medicine. You don't need three tips on leadership or four steps on how to manage your anger. You need a heart transplant. And the good news of the gospel is that for all this sin God sends his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a really important biblical word that you may not be familiar with. It means that Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, lived a perfect life. And then became the propitiation, the wrath absorbing sacrifice on the cross. For all those that would trust in him. And rose again in victory over sin and the grave. And now gives life to whosoever will turn from themselves and trust in him. And when I say turn, I'm not asking you to dig down deeper in yourself and come up with some work that God would be pleased with. I'm saying that if you hear these words now, I think that's evidence that God is in fact giving you that heart transplant so that you can turn to him and put your hope in him. Do that even now. I beg of you, do that even now. If you have more questions, come talk to me, somebody else that you know to be a Christian in this room after service, and we'll spend as much time as you need helping you understand this all-important, all-glorious good news. And for the rest of us that are already trusting in Jesus, let's worship him in response. Let's pray. Father, take these words and this truth and use it for our good. To produce the fruit of humility and joy and worship and gratitude in us. I pray that you'd also use it to convict people who came into this room thinking that they were basically okay. Use it, I pray, to turn their eyes away from themselves and finally to you, who alone can satisfy and who has made a substitute for your wrath through your Son, Jesus Christ. Do this, I pray, Lord, for the joy of your people, for the salvation of all those that you would save this morning, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.